Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Thank you for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and with me as always, Professor Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I am well. What about you? I'm very well too, thank you. I'm slightly... um, Cold, but well, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, it's all relative. I mean, I've been complaining bitterly about the cold, uh, but yeah. we don't get the cold that they get in the northern hemisphere. In, no, we don't. Uh, That's right. America, Canada, and Europe. So I'm not going to whinge too much because they'll think we're sooks. But uh, it is pretty darn cold here at the moment. And they had snow in Queensland for only the third time in 35 years this week, which is. Um, <laughs> That's how cold it is. But, uh, yeah, um, better them than us. Uh, now, coming up today of Space Nuts, we're going to look at um, some newborn planets that have been discovered. They're being described as baby planets or something to that effect. Um, and we've, we're going to knock, up, uh, knock over a couple of questions that have come in. One from Tyler Lucan, who is asking about uh, whether or not the technology uh, exists or will exist one day for the creation of a space elevator. We've talked about it before, but it is a fascinating uh, concept and one that would actually revolutionise certain forms of transport. And we are going to uh, also answer a question from a Queenslander, David Bated, and commiserations, David, in anticipation of your team's heavy loss tonight. And, you know, I'm happy to stand corrected because I'm so used to being a loser from New South Wales. Uh, But he asks, could Earth have ever had rings? That is a great question, Um, particularly from a Queenslander. So we'll get on to that a little later. But uh, firstly, Fred, um, they're they're describing these as uh, exoplanet baby pictures. So what have they found? Uh, This is... uh information or a discovery, I guess, is the right word, that's come from uh, basically the European Southern Observatory, uh, which has telescopes at a place called Cerro Paranal in northern Chile. They operate four very large telescopes, uh, which together are called the VLT, the Very Large Telescope, uh, because they can, they can actually be combined to be used together, but normally they're used singly. Each one has an 8.2-metre diameter mirror. So um, I know because uh, we monitor this kind of thing the um uh, of course australia is now uh, a strategic partner of the european southern observatory so we get to be very heavily involved with um, the instrumentation and things of that sort and i happen to know that the instrument that has been used uh, for these for these discoveries is uh, the most popular instrument on the whole uh, vlt suite it's a, a thing called muse which is the multi-unit spectroscopic explorer. Uh, and it, what it lets you do is look at um, many, many, uh, many objects in, a, in an image in great detail, breaking it up into their spectroscopic 
rainbow colors and getting that barcode of information. So, so Muse is a fantastic instrument. Uh, it's very heavily oversubscribed. Everybody wants to use it. Uh, and this particular team who come uh, from, uh, well, they're, they're based in the Netherlands, but there's, there's uh, quite a big group. They've been clearly been successful in uh, winning time on Muse, on the VLT, and have made this fantastic discovery of a, st- a system of two newly forming planets uh, in orbit around a star with a totally unmemorable name of PDS-70. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> PDS-70 uh, has a, a, what's called a protoplanetary disk around it. So that's been known already. That was, that's been measured before. Um, but uh, in observing that disk, which I think came from observations with the ALMA telescope, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, um, okay, so you find a, a disk, uh, but you look for gaps in the disk, and it's in the gaps where the newborn planets are, as you might expect, because the disk is providing the raw material uh, that the planets are made of. And sure enough, PDS-70 has uh, now been shown to have two uh, newborn planets in a gap in its protoplanetary disk. Uh, they're, they're still, uh, you know, these are observations that are right at the edge of possibility. Uh, one of the problems when you're observing, when you're directly observing planets around a star, is that they're always much, much fainter than the star itself. Mm. So you've got to use a technique that blots out the light of the star, uh, but doesn't blot out more of it than you need, because otherwise you blot out the planets as well. Um, so that's what's happened. It's called an occulting disk that is put over the image of the star, and that hides the hides the star itself. Um, and then you use what's called adaptive optics to um, basically compensate for the, the twinkling of stars, the turbulence in our own atmosphere. And what has been revealed are these two little blobs, which are now thought to be the two planets of PDS-70. One one is about, um, it's something like, if I remember right, it's about 3 billion uh, kilometres from the parent star, and the other's about twice as far, um, 6 billion kilometres, which is kind of, you know, it's it's more or less... um, uh, the distance of New Horizons from the sun is six billion kilometers. So when we when New Horizons flew by Ultima Thule, it's really a little getting while, out there, isn't it? it sounds I think it's six and a half. To, yeah. Similar to a Kuiper Belt situation. Isn't yes, it? that's right. So so this this protoplanetary disk is much bigger than the solar system, uh, and has these two objects. So the nearer one is about the distance from uh, Uranus to the sun, uh, and that is thought to be an object, which is. Uh, between four and 17 times the mass of Jupiter. So this is very difficult to estimate, but it's a big object. Uh, And actually, if it goes over 13 times the mass of Jupiter, then it's classified as a star, a thing called a brown dwarf star, because it's 13 Jupiter masses is the the lower limit for one of those. Uh, So this is, it's almost certainly a planet, um, you know, smaller than that. But clearly a big object and and it has to be because uh you're looking uh out to a distance uh of uh if i remember rightly it's about 100 sorry 370 light years away i mean you know you're you're looking uh, a long way through the disk of our galaxy and the other one uh which rejoices in the name of pds 70c because b is the inner planet c is the outer planet uh that's probably a, a little bit more uncertain they're suggesting 
that it might have a mass of one to ten times the mass of Jupiter. So they're still gas giants, effectively. They're large star large planets. Uh, but it's astonishing that we can see them directly from 370 light years away. Yeah, um, and they, they sound enormous. I mean, they're just... Um... You look at Jupiter and think, wow, but if these things yeah. are so much bigger, it yeah, is, right. uh, is quite astonishing. They're, yes, that's right. It's, um, I, I mean, I guess what, what this is saying is that the way the technology is at the moment, you're only going to discover the big things. Yeah. And, you know, so you might well end up um, as uh, with the technology we have now, just picking off the the totally delinquent ones that are at the extreme uh, extreme size of the you know of the uh, of the of the planetary mass range so uh, as perhaps time goes on and certainly when we get into the era of ELTs the extremely large telescopes which are the next thing on the horizon they will um, be able to image planets much more easily than we can now uh, and in a sense, this this Muse observation is almost testing the kind of technology that we'll use on on extremely large telescopes. The biggest one will be the European one. It will be not very far, actually, from Cerro Paranal at a place called Cerro Amazones uh, in northern Chile. That will have a mirror 39 metres in diameter. It will be the biggest optical telescope in the world by a long way and will be run by the European Southern Observatory like uh, like the VLT is. And I suppose when those telescopes start to come online, we're probably going to um, make discoveries that are very, very difficult to make at the moment, such as the situation with PDS-70. We've found two gas giants, but there's a possibility, maybe a probability, that there are rocky planets closer to that star that we can't see at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's right. Uh, so, you know, the, the sky's the limit when it comes to new telescopes. You, when you when you plan a new telescope, you always uh, put together what's called a science case. You try and, you know, think of the kind of science that you might do with it. And that's usually involves a lot of hard work by a lot of very clever people uh, to, to say how you would study things with this big telescope. But the most exciting thing about big telescopes is the stuff that you didn't expect to discover mm. uh, because they always produce results that come completely out of the blue and surprise everybody. So really looking forward to the EELT, the European Extremely Large Telescope. Yeah, it sort of gives you a feeling that we're just on the cusp of um, the next generation of, of uh, discovery. It, uh, it just has that Absolutely. feeling about it. Mm. All right, uh, we'll keep an eye on things uh, and can't wait for those new telescopes to go online. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with, of course, Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor... Express VPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined Express VPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity, even if you're having nothing to hide? 
it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space nuts. Now, Fred, we're um, we're going to go to uh, a question early this week because uh, we were both kind of entranced by this one, and it's something we've talked about before. And thank you to Tyler Lucan who has uh, sent us this question from the wonderful nation of Canada. Um, actually, he's uh, said, uh, "You are my favourite." podcast and he said not spelt wrong canadians put a u in it yet yeah, so do we in australia um we do put a u in favorite so um it didn't look wrong to me at all <laughs> anyway he said i've been listening since the beginning and i just love seeing the continued development of the podcast since your start i really like the inclusion of listener questions which is why i am now writing now he says we've all heard of the great science fiction idea of space elevators and although there would be great benefits for one to bring payloads from earth's surface to um uh LEO is low Earth orbit. Low Earth orbit, I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> Current material science isn't advanced enough to make a substance or compound that could stretch up into the orbit, uh, into orbit and not succumb to its own weight and snap or collapse. So if we can't yet do it on Earth, has any serious consideration or investigation been made to see if it's practical to make a space elevator on the moon? Uh, would this not be great and beneficial for upcoming plans to restart lunar surface explorations by uh, womankind and mankind? Again, I love the show and uh, your passion to deliver such knowledge and news. Cheers from the humble village of Bowser, British Columbia. Thanks, Tyler. Good question. Space elevation. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, it it's certainly um was proposed originally for science fiction, the idea being that you you connect um a spacecraft in a geostationary orbit uh with the ground because uh, a geostationary orbit by definition stays above the same point on the equator. <clears throat> and uh, there has been a lot of serious study of this. And in fact, books have been written about space elevators and what we need to do to make them. Uh, so clearly what you've got to do is stretch something upwards from <laughs> from the equator, uh, 36,000 kilometers, uh, and connect with the spacecraft, the uh, geostationary satellite. And then, you, and then you, you build a lift and send things up and down on it. Uh, you do have a few other <clears throat> uh, little technical issues 
including the fact that you've, I think you've got to build a, a sort of compensating version out the other way from the spacecraft to make the, all the dynamics work. Um, <clears throat> but the, the real killer for the space elevator, certainly as far as the Earth is concerned, isn't so much the technology. Uh, it, that might be a killer um, because, as uh, exactly as Tyler says, the, the stresses and strains on the material that you would, you would need uh, are probably beyond current material science. So we don't have, you know, the the um, the carbon fibers and things or whatever whatever is needed beryllium fibers who knows what it might be that you need to to build one of these we don't have that yet so we can't do it but the the real killer for the space elevator was something um that was pointed out to me by a fairly learned person uh, one day when uh, I was lucky enough to have dinner with him. Uh, I, that was uh, Buzz Aldrin. Oh, <laughs> you, yes. You've heard of Buzz Aldrin. I've met Buzz Aldrin. Yeah, yes. yeah. So we, we were talking about the space elevator, and he said it's not going to work. And his point was very well made, and it's that um, our current situation in space, of all the space debris that's up there, actually prevents it from happening. Yeah. And that's because you've got to build it up from the equator uh, or else it doesn't work at all. And every piece of orbiting space junk crosses the equator twice in its orbit. One's going northwards, one's going southwards. So there is always going to be stuff uh, which could threaten the space elevator. So unless you can sort of armor plate it um, for that whole region from low Earth orbit upwards, uh, you're always going to be at risk of a collision. And that could be from a tiny piece of space debris that might just hit a critical component or the elevator on its way up, uh, or it might be from something much bigger. So uh, he was very, very um, down about the idea of the space elevator. And, and uh, Buzz is not known for being negative about things because he's, a, you know, he's, he's one of the great champions of space travel, as you'd expect. Uh, but, yeah, the space elevator, he said, as far as the Earth's concerned, is a non-starter. And it was a very interesting thing to point out, which I have to say, <clears throat> in my ignorance, I hadn't really thought of before. Now, well, funnily enough, that was my first thought. When we started talking about this, I thought, well, the, the first problem they're going to have is not getting hit by something. That was my first thought. Well, you're just such a far-sighted thinker, Andrew. That's why I talk it's to you. Probably just dumb luck, really, but... Uh... <laughs> It, it is, yeah, it, like yeah. he says, it is, it's the biggest problem. We've, we've talked about the junk in space and the efforts yeah. to try and get rid of it, but some of it's so tiny that they'll never be able to catch it. That's that's right. It, well, it, you know, eventually we'll spiral back to Earth and burn up in the atmosphere. It'll be a little shooting star. But, but uh, of course, this now um, informs the question that Tyler has asked about why don't we do it on the moon? Mm. Um, and I haven't studied the... Uh, the phenomenon of of what you might call selenostationary orbits. There must be studies of that. Uh, seleno is the prefix to do with the moon. Selenography is the mapping of the moon. So selenostationary orbits, I don't know what height they would be above the moon's surface, but um, I suspect it's a, it is actually a possibility that perhaps you could use technology that is at least on the horizon today to build a space elevator into lunar orbit. Um, my question would be, what is the 
you know, what's the killer benefit of that? Um, because uh, it, it would it would only be, uh, I guess, really physically, or let me put it this way, commercially profitable. Because a lot of this is going to be determined by commercial, um, you know, commercial considerations. It would only be commercial, commercially profitable if you were mining raw materials from the moon uh, in a big way, uh, so big that you, you know, you you would save the money of launch costs by uh, by actually building the elevator. I suspect it would always be, more, given the, the moon's lower gravity than the Earth, I suspect it would always be more e- economical. To, to fly them up there using more conventional technology. But it is a really interesting idea. And once again, Tyler, something I hadn't thought of before, the idea of a, uh, you know, of a um, space elevator on the moon. Uh, it will be worth checking up to see if anybody else has come up with that idea. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can see many reasons why it would be easier to do on the moon, uh, c- certainly much less space junk to deal with. But, um, yeah, uh, given the... Uh, the reasoning behind our current um, plans to go back there—it's uh, probably not a feasible way of getting up and down. Um, yeah. So, yeah, maybe in time when they are perhaps, perhaps ha- harvesting on the moon, if that ever happens, uh, they they may well find that a space elevator elevator becomes economically viable. So, yeah, um, there could there could be. Um, sorry, just to cut in there because yeah, uh, right. I meant to say this earlier but forgot. There could be. Um, a real problem with this, the lunar space elevator as well, though, and that is the gravitational perturbation of the Earth, because um, uh, you know on the Earth you've, you you do have the gravitational effect of the Moon to consider in building your space elevator, and that's going to put wiggles into it. Yeah. But that problem is much greater the other way around. If you try and build a space elevator on the Moon, um, you've got this huge gravitating body. Uh, not very far away, uh, that's uh, effectively disturbing the elevator. And you might find that you essentially set up um, oscillations or something in the elevator which would simply be unsustainable. So there might be physical reasons why you couldn't actually do it, as well as wondering whether it's economically worthwhile. Of course, the other thing is we just wait until the moon drifts far enough away for that not to be a problem. (laughs) Yeah, that's absolutely right. (laughs) There you go. So there's a solution to everything. Actually, uh, there's, a, there's an even better solution. Here, wait for this one, Andrew, uh-huh. because when the moon has gone that far away, uh, it will be about half a million kilometres away. This is the s- sort of stable end result of the solar system. And the same side of Earth will always face the same side of the moon. So you could actually just stretch a long elevator between them because they're always going to be facing each other. That'd be just pretty cool. Send, send people that way, yeah. yeah 380,000 kilometre, oh, sorry, a 500,000 uh, kilometre long space elevator. Remember where you heard it first? Yes, indeed. Uh, and I think it was Kim Stanley Robinson in his Mars series that actually had a space elevator going between Earth and Mars, but um, I don't quite know how that worked. But, no, uh, that's, that's a tricky one. Yeah, very tricky one. But he did it. I mean, it's science fiction. You can do whatever you like. <laughs> Yes. Uh, Thank you, Tyler, for such a wonderful and thought-provoking question. You're listening to Space Nuts, uh, Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, just before we get to our next question, uh, reminding you that we have a Patreon account, and thank you to everybody who's signed up 
to subscribe. Uh, 16 people now are subscribing to Space Nuts uh, via patreon.com slash Space Nuts. Uh, we thank you for your subscriptions. Uh, very, very um, happy that you um, enjoy the program that much that you want to subscribe. Because uh, the advantage of subscribing uh, via Patreon is you get a commercial-free version of Space Nuts. I know some places get that at the moment anyway, but that's going to change in time. But uh, if you sign up for Patreon, um, it is commercial free. You get the episode uh, seamlessly from start to finish. Uh, we are also on YouTube. If you want to catch up with some episodes there, all 155 episodes are on our YouTube space. I was going to say channel, but it's not really a channel, except it probably is. I don't know. Uh, I leave all that up to our producer, Hugh. Now, Fred, uh, a question from David in um, in Louisville, uh, otherwise known as Queensland. I could probably eat my words. <laughs> for those who don't understand what I'm talking about, um, every year the states of New South Wales and Queensland play off in a best-of-three rugby league football series called the State of Origin. The players play for the t- uh, for the state that they were born in or played junior football in. So it's there's a lot of uh, feeling that goes into these games. In fact, it's probably the, the best series of the year in any form of football, and I know that's probably going to start some arguments, but that's just how I feel about it. Uh, New South Wales currently the champions for the first time in three million years, uh, so they're defending their crown okay. against Queensland, and they play tonight our time in Queensland, and we never win there, so I don't know why I'm talking it up, but... Um, there it is. So I'm giving David a bit of a hard time, and uh, the best news of all is he can't answer me, not straight away. Uh, anyway, David says, G'day, gents. Love the show. Or he did. Well, he might stop <laughs> loving it now. <laughs> which I've only recently discovered. Well, he's going to undiscover us and have been listening to all the back episodes. During your latest one, May 31st, uh, you uh, talk about how water may have been deposited on Earth via comets. This jogged a question in the memory after listening to your Cassini-Saturn episode. Could Earth have had rings like Saturn that rained ice crystals down from them and formed our oceans? Yes. Well, very interesting question, David. What do you think, Fred? Yeah, I think it's a great question, and I think the answer is... Um, it's entirely possible that uh, there was a, a period in the Earth's history where uh, we had rings, because uh, rings are not that uncommon. I mean, we always think of Saturn and the, the marvellous ring system uh, of the planet Saturn, but uh, the, all the gas giant planets have rings. Some of them are pre- pretty anemic. In fact, uh, the, well, all of them are fairly anemic compared with Saturn's. But also some of the smaller bodies in the solar system, there's a couple of... Um, uh, really quite distant asteroids. They're called centaurs. They're icy asteroids that are between the orbit of Saturn and Uranus, if I remember rightly. And they, too, have rings. Uh, Not that we've seen them. We've seen them, we've discovered them by uh, that process which we call occultations, where the shadow of a star passes across the Earth's surface. Sorry, the shadow of the asteroid cast in the light of a star passes across the Earth's surface. And you can observe it from many different points and you can discover the dimensions of the asteroid. But also, um, if you're lucky, you'll discover rings around it. And that's how these discoveries have been made. So rings are relatively common. And we think that they form, and certainly in the case of Saturn, uh, the belief is that they have formed by uh, either a, a, a comet colliding with one of the icy moons out there 
or an, you know an icy uh, a, a, a pair of icy moons colliding. Um, the the only issue with this idea that the Earth might have had ice rings around it is where it is, because the Earth is in the inner solar system mm. where it's receiving much more of the sun's radiation. Now, the sun's radiation has changed over the 4.6 billion year history of the solar system. So, it, and, and we do know that the Earth went through a phase that we call the snowball Earth phase, when it was basically just frozen. Um, and it may well be that at that time you could have had uh, rings of ice around, around the Earth, which may, uh, as is happening on Saturn, as we now know, they may have eventually drained down onto the Earth's surface and perhaps helped to form the oceans. But the, the, the bottom line is that they likely came originally from something like comets coming in and colliding uh, nearby and perhaps forming rings around the Earth. It may just be uh, an extra step in the process of ocean formation. But it's a good suggestion. Uh, it's not certainly not beyond the realms of possibility that that might have happened. Unlike it's very hard to Queensland know how... Lo- unlike Queensland losing the state of origin, which is certainly um, just an... You know, so so just, a just, a word to, just a word to David in, in Queensland... <laughs> Uh, David, I'm a completely innocent bystander in this because um, as an outsider, uh, I've never really understood the state of origin, but it does seem to be something that people here get very excited about. Mm. Most notably, my uh, my colleague uh, sitting over there in Dubbo, <laughs> Panning, yeah, right which is actually a lot of... closer to Queensland than where I am, I have to say. Yes, it is, but that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Actually, I did live in Queensland for a couple of years um, early in my radio career, worked for a station up there in Mackay. And we, I think we were there for two years. And I think in all that time, New South Wales won one game. Mm. So, And it was really hard to live there. <laughs> I bet it was. Very hard to live there during <laughs> those few months. Um, but you know, yeah. we're all friends outside of the football. Of course. That's um, right. One of my that's very best mates is from uh, Queensland. Uh, we met them when we moved to Mackay and we're still great friends and we still see each other every couple of years. But um, I appreciate the question, David. Uh, well asked. And, uh, yes, uh, the, the answer to your question is possibly possibly so. Now, it also leads me to something we're going to talk about in our next episode, Fred, which we – did um, discuss briefly last week, and that was the question of heavy water, because mm-hmm. we um, we just you know we, we've we've uh, they've come across potential new evidence that Earth's water may have come from asteroids, and it's you know water as we know it, obviously, but it could have been heavy water because there are different kinds of water out there. And I asked the question whether or not we could actually drink heavy water or would life survive with heavy water rather than ordinary water or normal water or standard water, whatever you want to call it. So we'll get into that next week uh, at, at length because I did, um, I did suggest that uh, it was something we should investigate. One, one quick question that pop, popped into my mind while we were talking about David's question. You talked about uh, the shadows of asteroids passing over the Earth. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we sometimes do see shadows on the Earth because of eclipses, but do we have regular shadows passing over us from great distances that go virtually unnoticed to the naked eye? Yes, because, um, you know, starlight uh, is falling on the Earth from all directions um, and um, the asteroid belt has got lots of objects in it. So uh, there are indeed um, these phenomena. What, what usually happens if there's an interesting object likely to pass in front of a star, um, that this is followed up assiduously 
by the astronomical community because you can learn a lot from this process. So when there is a uh, one of these occultations forecasts and there's software now that sort of generates predictions as, as to what's going to happen, uh, then quite often there is a, a mustering of uh, of telescopes. It's It was the way um, that we discovered that Pluto has an atmosphere, uh, Andrew, by uh, observing Pluto passing in front of a distant star. This is quite a long time ago. It's more than 10 years ago uh, when the light of the star was seen to dim only gradually rather than switching off suddenly as it as you would expect when uh, an object with no atmosphere passes in front of it. Ah. So, yes, it's happening all the time. Yeah, that's we just don't notice it so much. You've got to know what you're looking for. Yeah, very good. All right. Um, that's just about it for this week. Uh, Fred, thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. Always good to talk. And we will catch you next time. Uh, astronomer Fred Watson, he's also a professor uh, and a real nice guy. He'll be back next week on another edition of Space Nuts, as will I. Until then, uh, take care and we'll catch you again real, real soon. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.